Section four of Six Radical Thinkers by John McCunn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter two The Utilitarian Optimism of John Stuart Mill. Part one. John Stuart Mill took perhaps the most effective means in his power of writing himself down optimist into a political economy deeply tinctured by the teachings of malthus and dominated from first to last by a recognition of the niggardliness of nature he introduced that chapter entitled the stationary state which embodies surely one of the most cheerful forecasts that ever came from philosophic pen for does it not tell us that mankind is advancing to a social state in which thanks to an assured and permanent supply of their material needs they will be delivered for ever from the trampling crushing elbowing and treading on each other's heels which form the existing type of social life and thereby left free to give themselves with undivided energies to political moral and intellectual development to the enjoyment of nature and to the influences of solitude that cradle of thoughts and aspirations could ruskin himself have wished for more yet there the picture stands no passing vision too good to be true but a serious forecast which claims to be rooted in economic tendencies already at work in our midst nor is this a solitary passage there is another in the utilitarianism which reads more like a dream of eighteenth-century perfectibility than a deliberate utterance of the nineteenth century it must be quoted at length because it is precisely its sustained hopefulness that makes it so impressive no one whose opinion deserves a moment's consideration can doubt that most of the great positive evils of the world are in themselves removable and will if human affairs continue to improve be in the end reduced within narrow limits poverty in any sense implying suffering may be completely extinguished by the wisdom of society combined with the good sense and providence of individuals even that most intractable of enemies disease may be indefinitely reduced in dimensions by good physical and moral education and proper control of noxious influences while the progress of science holds out a promise for the future of still more direct conquests over this detestable foe and every advance in that direction relieves us from some not only of the chances which cut short our lives but what concerns us still more which deprive us of those in whom our happiness is wrapped up as for vicissitudes of fortune and other disappointments connected with worldly circumstances these are principally the effect either of gross imprudence of ill-regulated desires or of bad or imperfect social institutions all the grand sources in short of human suffering are in a great degree many of them almost entirely conquerable by human care and effort and though their removal is grievously slow though a long succession of generations will perish in the breach before the conquest is completed and this world becomes all that if will and knowledge were not wanting it might easily be made 
yet every mind sufficiently intelligent and generous to bear a part however small and inconspicuous in the endeavour will draw a noble enjoyment from the contest itself which he would not for any bribe in the form of selfish indulgence consent to be without it will not be denied that this is optimism but it is not enough to call it optimism you must add that it is optimism which triumphed over the keenest perception of obstacles a perception of obstacles which parts it for a whole world from the millennium of the visionary or the easy worthless dreams of the fool's paradise these obstacles in truth darken for mill all along the line some men are optimists because they believe in the beneficence of nature other men because they believe in the omnipotence of god but mill believes in neither is he discoursing upon nature it is to tell us that nature so far from meriting our trust still less our encomia is in point of fact guilty of every crime for which men are hanged footnote his words are in sober truth nearly all the things which men are hanged or imprisoned for doing to one another are nature's everyday performance three essays on religion page twenty eight and footnote is he speculating about god it is in effect to tell us that the belief that god's in his heaven is very far from a guarantee that all's right with the world as browning puts it being indeed a belief tenable only by those who are prepared to acquit god of the manifest evil of the world by denying his omnipotence no writer could more frankly face the conclusions of his logic divine goodness and divine omnipotence are declared to sunder before the force of hostile fact footnote the notion of a providential government by an omnipotent being for the good of his creatures must be entirely dismissed ibid page two forty three and footnote this is only what might be expected from mill's speculative position in a sensationalistic theory of knowledge like his unable at utmost speculative stretch to rise above empirical generalizations which for aught the human mind can know may be subverted to their foundations by larger experience there is manifestly no room for any absolute trust persistent in the face of ugly facts that somehow good will be the final goal of ill mill be it clearly understood is not an agnostic nor an atheist he is not unwilling to believe that there may be a god for have we not the argument from design such as it is but even so the existence of such a god would furnish but slender security for the final triumph of goodness for though god may be regarded as the foe of evil he is certainly never regarded by mill as its master this is the first difficulty a difficulty rooted in mill's fundamental philosophical principles not in mill therefore need we expect to find that pantheistic faith that has often strengthened the poet the prophet the reformer by carrying the assurance even in the darkest hour that the nations are struggling forward to some far-off divine event some end greater than they know mazzini's watchword god and the people is not possible here 
the optimism of mill must rest if it rest anywhere upon his faith in man yet this does but bring us face to face with a new and a not less formidable difficulty for it must now be said that no optimist has ever avowed so low an estimate of his fellow-men as mill this is beyond mistaking for it is the central paradox of mill's social teaching that he is on the one hand the greatest thinker of english democracy and on the other the persistent censor shall we say libeller of all sorts and conditions of all ranks and classes of his fellow-countrymen illustration is easy at yarmouth so he writes when seventeen to his corrosive father dined with a leading radical not much better than a mere radical it was in this spirit he was brought up free as he tells us from the contagion of vulgar modes of thinking it was the same in his later life his whole essay on the subjection of women says fitzjames stevens and not without reasons goes to prove that of the two sexes which between them constitute the human race one has all the vices of a tyrant and the other all the vices of a slave english society he declares in his autobiography to be unfit for the society of the man of intellect unless indeed it should accept him as an apostle he is a very candid friend of the people he calls them the herd sometimes the common uncultivated herd when he writes on democratic government it is to diffuse a terror of the majority and when he advocates parliamentary reform it is to tell us that of the few points on which the english as a people are entitled to the moral preeminence with which they are accustomed to compliment themselves at the expense of other nations the one of greatest importance is that the higher classes do not lie and the lower though mostly habitual liars are ashamed of lying when he stood as radical candidate for westminster this passage was raked up and read out in a public meeting with the question if he wrote it i did was the answer and indeed there can be no doubt at all that it embodies his deliberate convictions passages like these can scarcely be said to savour of optimism they seem to reek of pessimism they would embarrass any thinker and doubly do they embarrass one who is all for democracy this in two ways for in the first place they give a handle to the cynic the cynic might well turn round upon the writer of these belittling estimates with the question why if men be indeed so bad as this that great democratic end the happiness of the greatest number should seem worth so much as the scuffle of a contested election in vain to exalt the ideal of political benevolence the area of benevolence might well shrivel into the area of blight before this withering blast of calculated disparagement as well build a temple of rotten bricks as rear an ideal of public good out of lives that are individually contemptible and in the second place to our cynic's retort we might add the reminder not surely out of place that these tyrants and slaves these philistines in need of an apostle these habitual liars what are they but the only available nay the chosen instruments through whom the democratic reformer has elected to work the reminder be it added is doubly to the point here because as we shall abundantly see 
it was emphatically in men that this democratic reformer set his trust there have been reformers who believed that good institutions may do much to atone for imperfect men but mill is not one of them his trust is not in institutions but in men if the working classes are to have a future it will be by the prudence of individual working men if representative government is indeed to be the best of all forms of government this will rest with the individual voter if social life in general is to attain a full vigorous many-sided development again it will depend upon the free self-realization of individual men who say the thing they think and act the thing they say it is as we have said mill's faith for the future turns on his faith in men yes may we not add and in such men in the herd in the common uncultivated herd this is the second difficulty but there is a third and it is one before which many an optimist has gone down this third difficulty is the economic problem to the magnitude of which the eyes of mill as economist could not be blind it was in truth by his frank recognition of this inexorable problem that mill decisively separated himself from the earlier radicals some of them for example the metaphysically mad godwin and his fanatical friend holcroft had like other literary leaders of the french revolution times been optimists in point of fact the two just named did not despair of even while still in this life vanquishing that one great eternal monarchy the monarchy of death their optimism was confident but then it was of little value for though they hoped to abolish death they had somehow missed the fact that mankind had to reckon with subsistence it was far otherwise with mill economist from the days when he had his first economic lessons from his father as they walked the lanes of surrey he had all that familiarity with the economic obstacles to progress which the political economy of the nineteenth century has served to disclose and which our socialists have done their best to popularize above all he had read malthus and significantly he tells us that it was malthus who first turned his thoughts to social questions we may say he repaid the debt for to the last social questions always turned his thoughts to malthus the results upon him of this potent influence were far-reaching and final and they separated him both in diagnosis and remedy not only from the radicals of the revolution but even from bentham and his own father their diagnosis located the disease of the body politic in bad political institutions their remedy prescribed radical political reform in their blind enlightenment they seemed to fancy that it needed but to sweep the earth of tories and whigs to bring a new heaven and a new earth mill was not so easily satisfied the plague spot which his eye discerned lay deeper than any political abuse even the worst and it was one not to be cured by all the political reforms that had entered into the heart of tom paine and bentham put together to conceive for economic analysis had revealed to him certain facts of the first magnitude with which all future progress was bound to reckon one of them was what he called the most important proposition in political economy the law of diminishing returns from land 
he was aware of course that this law could be counteracted he knew that the improvement of the industrial arts could postpone the time at which in any given country it began to operate and even then apply an effectual drag to its action yet such considerations did but furnish qualifications they did not upset this law they did not extinguish the tendencies due as these were to the physical properties of the soil for which it found the formula let but the struggle of man with nature go on till it became acute let but nature or human nature bring into the world more mouths to feed and forthwith this law would disclose itself in its true colours shall we say its true terrors as a statement of one of the fundamental conditions of man's life upon the planet to mill this is ultimate the niggardliness of nature is to him a basal fact of human existence this however is but half the truth niggardly of meat nature is anything but niggardly of mouths this perception came to mill early it never left him he is never weary of denouncing the thoughtlessness the improvidence the irresponsibility that bring children into the world heedless of how they are to be fed nor with all his passion for liberty did he hesitate to urge the imposition of legal restrictions upon improvident marriages it is not to be wondered at for to the end of his days he remained convinced that all the gains of social progress would be lost if the masses of the people could not learn to meet the niggardliness of nature by mastery of this menacing growth of population it is not our present object to ask if in all this he was right there are some who think that malthus has been refuted there are others who believe that he has been refuted so often that there are evidently serious difficulties in refuting him be this as it may the point that here concerns us is that as mill believed there lay straight across the path of progress this population question not in political institutions not in the capitalistic system not in competition not in private capital or private property in none of these things lay the really formidable foe not in them but in the niggardliness of nature wedded to the improvidence of man this the supreme economic obstacle to progress is moreover magnified for mill by a further anticipation he could not admit except provisionally the force of the consideration by which the menace of an overcrowded world is commonly met the indefinite growth of capital he was of course aware that capital in all prosperous countries tends to increase he knew none knew better all the causes that make for this but behind all these causes he saw the operation of a law which vitally influenced all his forecasts the law that profits tend to a minimum in other words despite the enormous growth of capital which was ceaselessly going on before his eyes he foresaw the coming of a day when by the inexorable action of economic law profits would gradually descend to a point at which further saving would cease to be worth while he was of course aware that here again there were counteractives waste of capital exportation of capital mechanical inventions commercial enterprise business management nor was he likely to miss the obvious fact that small profits upon large capitals may long suffice to stimulate savings and enterprise 
but still the day was as he thought always coming gradually but inevitably capital was filling up the fields of available investment and in so doing heralding the dawn of a day when by sheer failure of adequate inducement to save it would become stationary so firmly was he convinced of this that he urged this tendency as one of the main grounds for anticipating the coming of that stationary state in which as we have seen he so confidently believed now mill himself did not look forward to this consummation with any misgiving we have seen that he looked forward to the stationary state with enthusiasm it was one of his ideals but then it was so and it evoked those eloquent forecasts already quoted only because he believed that stationary capital would have as its accompaniment stationary population here comes the misgiving for were the first of these results to come to pass and not the second were capital to find its limits while population still went on increasing what then would there be no risk that instead of the stationary state with all its glowing adjuncts society would find itself moving steadily to poverty and famine this it is true may seem a vain alarm capital one might suggest could never under the conditions of the stationary state be stationary the growth of intelligence of science of invention which mill hoped and believed would never be stationary would not fail to find new sources of investment so far the stationary state would prove economically a fiction this however is not mill's view he believed in the tendency of economic progress to bring the stationary state of capital just as he believed in the law of diminishing returns from land hence the intensified acuteness of the population question for while niggard nature stands sponsor for the one law and the economic system for the other who will be bold enough to predict that human nature will play its part in controlling what a writer of repute has called the devastating torrent of children End of section four